Good morning and welcome to Leading Off with True Blue LA. We have a special episode for you today. Had the privilege of interviewing Eric Adams. Uh, he is the grandson of Red Adams, the uh, longtime Dodgers pitching coach uh, from 1969 to 1980. He wrote a book about his grandfather called Red and Blue, examining the wonderful life of Red Adams. And it's I, I can't recommend this book enough. The, it's about... Um, Someone who Don Sutton, uh, in his Hall of Fame speech, uh, called, or he said, Red Adams was the gold standard by which all other uh, coaches should be measured. Uh, there's so many testimonials uh, in um, Eric's book about his grandfather, uh, and it seems like universally uh, Red Adams was loved. Um, he was very well respected, uh, had a... Uh, just incredible coaching style that really translates into any era. Uh, but the book is about more than that. It's about his sort of baseball life. Uh, great stories, funny, uh, awesome book. Can't recommend it enough. I will link it in the show notes. But anyway, uh, here's our interview. Okay, with me now is Eric Adams. Um, uh, Dodger fans uh, might know his grandfather, uh, Red Adams, who was the pitching coach uh, with the Dodgers for 12 years from uh, 1969 to 1980. Uh, Eric has written a wonderful book about his grandfather, um, about his time in baseball uh, back in his from his playing days through his coaching days and beyond with uh, countless stories. Um, and Eric is with me here today to discuss that book. Eric, how are you doing? Hey, Eric. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. And, um, you know, I'm just really happy you enjoyed the book. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I will say this, I, I grew up in the watching the Dodgers, like in the eighties, I was a kid then. And, and so it was Ron, the Ron Paranofsky years in terms of like pitching coach and right. the seventies were kind of a blind spot for me for a while. Like, so I, I didn't, I wasn't, I can't say I was familiar with Red Adams, at least back then. Uh, but just like reading your book, it seems like he touched so many people. Uh, and just the, I guess my first question to you is how did you, or um, when did you uh, like know that you wanted to write this book? <laughs> it's a really good question. So even though I am an English teacher, and even though I've always, you know, admired my grandfather, you know, more than words can describe, um, I never actually intended to write a book, not one single book in my whole life. I, you know, I thought it was too big of a project. Um, but one of my cousins, uh, so to him, his name's Sean, and he's on the dedication page because the book wouldn't exist without cousin Sean. Um, it was Uncle Red to Sean, but he really urged me to consider writing a book just detailing the life of Red Adams. And so um, just a sentence or two of context, I graduated uh, in, in 2012 from UC Davis. I did my last couple years of college in UC Davis, so pretty close to Sacramento. And uh, my gramps was living in Rancho Murrieta, which is just uh, about five minutes south and east of downtown Sac. And so anyway, um, I was always really close with Red, but after I graduated college, we, uh, we agreed on an arrangement 
where he had just lost his wife a couple years prior. So it was just himself in that nice home in a nice community. And uh, I ended up living with him for the next three years. So from basically uh, the week after I graduated college or something like that, I lived with Grandpa Red for the next three years. Um, and during that time, I was refereeing a lot of basketball, um, getting serious about that. I'm still involved in that with uh, college basketball refereeing. And then I was able to complete the teaching credential. But every night I'm there with Red and, and making us dinner and, and hanging out. And sometimes we'd stay up real late just watching Sports Center. And so anyway, I knew a lot of the stories growing up. And then during those three years I was with him, I mean, I only got to know some of the same stories even better and better. And then I got to hear some. I thought I had heard them all. I got to hear some that I'd never heard, you know, my entire life until that point. And so uh, Sean, my cousin, was just like, Eric, you've got to write a book. You've got to. He's like, even if it's just for documenting his life's history, just for our family tree, he's like, you've got to write this book. And so um, after, you know, kind of deflecting for probably months or more, I finally decided, you know what, I'll, I'll just start with what I know and just kind of from the very beginning or start somewhere and, and just type away and I can always just bail out at any point. And so I ended up secretly working on it. Only a few people in the whole world knew about it. And I only, uh, yeah. And I worked on it for probably at least four years. Um, when it comes to the typing, the editing, um, I did all the stuff, typing, editing, published it through Amazon. And I mean, the interviews I was able to conduct amazing. I mean, the, the people I was able to speak with, I had spoken to a couple of these people before, but a lot of them I had never um, interacted with directly and just knew the names. But I mean, golly, the, the people I got to interview for this book to get words about my grandfather, I mean, you're looking at Dusty Baker, Sandy Koufax, Andy Messersmith, Rick Sutcliffe, Tommy John, Bert Hooten, Fred Clare, Steve Yeager, Jerry Royce, Mike Sosha, Peter O'Malley. And, and then I couldn't reach uh, Don Sutton directly, but his uh, public record of the Hall of Fame induction speech, I mean, the, the quote that he wraps up with, talking about my grandfather, I also threw that in there. Um, and I mean, it was just, even that alone, just getting to speak with these people and, and hear their perspectives on my grandfather that was incredible. And then, you know, mixing that in, I decided that'd be a nice way to kind of conclude the book and, and just wrap up his, his life story. So I, I think I, I probably first like became aware at least of, of Red Adams impact um, during the, the Don Sutton's hall of fame speech in, in 1998. And I, I, you know, you, you mentioned you include the, um, the quotes in the book, but also i uh, um, I'll link to the YouTube video as well, but he, he just, the first sentence alone, Red Adams is the standard by which every pitching coach should be measured is, is just amazing. I, I was just wondering, do you, do you know how, like, um, how your grandfather like took that at the time? Like what was he just, how did he sort of react to that? <laughs> well, Hey, first of all, I, I would be uh, missing an opportunity if I didn't tell you that as you read that quote to me right now, and I know it by heart, of course, um, as you read me that quote, I just got the chills. Okay? Yeah. I'm driving right now, and I, I swear, I, I'm not exaggerating. It's not a cliche. I'm not 
saying it for emphasis, I, I got goosebumps. Um, they're fading away now from when you said that quote. I mean, it's, that is, I mean, if, if you can think of a higher compliment, please tell me. <laughs> I mean, if you can think of a higher compliment, you know, please share. That is just such an incredible quote. And, and how he delivered it at his own Hall of Fame induction speech and saying he would not be in Cooperstown if it wasn't for him. And, and it's just, I mean, it gives me chills. I just got goosebumps again. And even though I've read it and, and watched it and seen it many times, um, I mean, it, it seems to never fade away. But Gramps, man, he, he, was, uh, he was about as humble as it got. I mean, he really, he was so humble that... Uh, I would say if anyone asked him directly, I might have several years ago, but I would say if anyone asked him directly how he felt about that quote, he would probably say something like, oh, looks like, you know, Don's been hitting the bottle again, or, you know, <laughs> he's running, running loose with something. Like, he would, he would just do some sort of one-liner that entirely deflects from himself and would just try to give credit elsewhere because that, that was his MO. That's how he operated. I mean, it, that's just who he was. And so even if it was that explicit and that public and that whatever, he he still would have just, uh, you know, found a way to to just, you know, kind of tune it down and, and also just redirect it somewhere else. I mean, that's just that's just what he did. I saw that thousands of times um, in my own observation. So you mentioned... I mean, <laughs> You you mentioned his humor and like that really comes across in the book in various examples, both from when he was a, a, a young player and then as a coach too, but like just throughout his life. Um, but one of the things I was sort of struck with, with was, you know, he was a pitcher and he, he didn't really pre preferred not to have mound visits like when he was on the mound. Yeah, so he yeah. sort of took it that way. But I, I, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, a lot of times during his mound visits, he would just go off topic just to sort of relax the pitcher. And I'm wondering, did, yeah. uh, did he did he think he deserved residuals for the Bull Durham like candle scene uh, at, at, at the mound? <laughs> for, for that, <laughs> no, that, there's no way. Straight out of that, yeah. Hey, hey, there's no way. So, I mean, your, your thinking would be spot on. But then again, when you're talking about my grandfather – I mean, he, anything he could do to give others credit. I mean, he had this phrase that he said, I heard a bunch of times when, whenever we'd watch ESPN together or talk about a situation between a player and a team or, you know, any sort of maybe conflict or something, uh, Gramps, he would say, he would say, you know, that's just, that's no good. You know, he goes, that's no good. He says, you should praise publicly, criticize privately, right? It's just, and, and it's kind of along those lines of, of he, he just he just didn't do anything to to bring credit to himself even if he was the reason for success or a prominent factor for success or something he, he just it just wasn't his style and he credited his dad uh for that a lot but i mean that's just that's just who he was and it was reinforced with the the many interviews i conducted of just that's who he was he was going to give the player all the credit even if, you know, the player wouldn't have been making these tweaks or, or adjustments or trying something without his, you know, polite encouragement or, or humor or relaxed interaction. So, I mean, for him, everything was predicated on relationships. Um, but he, he, 
didn't ever seek to take credit for anything. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Does that kind of answer that? Oh, for sure. And you mentioned, you know, throughout the book, there's, there's, um, I think different people you've interviewed, uh, mentioned that uh, Red Adams had no ego, and like you just said, but but at the same time, he also was very effective in like getting his point across. And, and a couple of the, the sort of people he came across as a, as a young man, uh, his high school baseball coach, uh, and uh, I guess biology and PE teacher at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then his first, uh, one of his first like minor league managers, uh, Carl Dittmar, he was sort of described as a disciplinarian and it, it seems like yeah. just from reading that he took like the um the discipline part from them but none of the like the hard ass or whatever i guess for lack of a better term uh he yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah i'm struck by that like just just how he sort of was able to like take the best parts of them and and none and like none of the worst yeah i i think that's a, a terrific assessment and you know, again, if you told him this to his face, he'd be like, oh, you know, what are you what are you talking about? But I mean, that's really I, I got to absorb just so much information um, throughout my time with him, uh, even before. And then more so just to add on with the three years I lived with him, he he really did just that. I mean, he really he really in in every situation and he even said some stuff like it of of, uh, you know, he tried to look at any situation or, or any, you know, interaction as, as something to maybe learn from and, and try to get beneficial results later. So he, uh, he, he mentioned some stuff a couple of times casually to me of when we were laughing about his (laughs) high school, you know, team experience and classroom stuff and all that. I mean, he, he would say something like, you know, learning kind of how, how not to, to deal with people or how, how he felt would be less effective with, with people. And, and he understood as all the people who I interviewed said over and over, it was like a broken record, but in an amazing way, he understood that every individual is different. Right. And so, and so the one size fits all, especially if it's kind of that rigid or strict nature, um, that was just something he viewed to be less effective than people could be. And so, you know, he definitely, yeah, he definitely strived to do that, but, but he also, <laughs> you know, wouldn't really brag about that. That's just what he embodied and, and, and how he operated. Yeah. He seemed, he seemed well ahead of his time, right? Like, uh, because just, uh, and just also just treating the players as individuals, but you see this now where like the coaching staffs are so much bigger now and in, in, especially in the majors, like back then yeah. there was maybe two or three coaches tops on a team and, yeah. and but like I, the individualized instruction is like almost it, not revolutionary but it was well ahead of its time because you see that a lot today but what not like 50 years ago when he was doing it and uh yeah uh, i i just I'll, I'll to go you mentioned this in the book it was a quote from charlie huff uh, his style was so solid that he could coach any style pitching. That's something I've never forgotten. It's like the, you're the, it's the, the book is full of these type of quotes where uh, it just right. showed, like, he touched so many people. It's just, it's just incredible. Like, honestly. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and he, and basketball has always been my number one sport. Uh, baseball was two for me. Basketball was one. And to give you an idea <laughs> 
<laughs> he never once, never once, ever, not even in a joking manner, tried to encourage that I should focus on baseball more than basketball. And further, further, even regarding my baseball playing days um, up through sophomore year of high school, which is then when I put it, uh, I actually took it off of the burner, not even a back burner to play traveling basketball year round. But even in all my baseball playing days, he always encouraged me to not get on the mound, you know, unless I really wanted to. He's like, you can always get up on there on that bump. He's like, you know, be a position player. If you were one good shortstop center, you know, play wherever. But he's like, you know, we can always work on, on the mound, uh, you know, later if you want. And so, I mean, just if that doesn't capture the essence of, of kind of how he carried himself, I mean, this guy had tremendous success. I mean, you look at the ERA numbers in the year. I mean, it's, it's like almost unfathomable because you're not going to have exactly the same pitching staff year in and year out but he's getting such similar results with his staff. It's like, but he never once pushed with me or, or, you know, anyone else. Oh, Hey, you know, really work on this or you got to work on that. And, and so when I would ask him, Oh, we'd go up, <laughs> we'd go, Hey, he's in his eighties. He's in his, let's see, mid eighties at least. Or what? And uh, he's sitting on a bucket. Okay. He's sitting on a bucket with a catcher's mid he's had since the seventies. And uh, I'm working on my delivery from the stretch and wind up and on my front leg. He focused a lot on the front leg angle. Um, you know, no matter who you were, he, he looked to refine that once he established a relationship with a pitcher. But he would be up there on a bucket, you know, mid-80s at least. <laughs> and I'm throwing to him as hard as I can and big sweeping Don Sutton curveballs. <laughs> and and we'd be up there in in his private community at the at the diamond, you know, working on pitching. But that's only because I asked him to. It's not because he would push it. And so he truly. You talk about modern sports, right? Professional ranks. I mean, you look at an NBA bench or uh, you know a dugout in the majors. Yeah, you're looking at up to maybe 18 coaches or 12 or 13 or whatever, right? Um, and I, I think you're kind of touching on the fact that he was able to provide some of that just by taking the time and having the, the open-minded approach of everyone is different. What can I do to try to figure out how I can best help this person here without messing them up? Like the stories he told me about, he would suggest something to somebody. He'd say, you know, I, I really think if you do this, I, I think it might get a little more action on the ball. You know, it might get a little more movement. And, you know, I think it's going to be a little more deceptive. I, so, you know, if you want to try it, let's try it for 20 pitches. Let's do, you know, whatever, 20, 15. And if it doesn't do anything, hey, or if it takes you the wrong way, throw it out the window, forget it. I mean, so that's like, to me, that's just such tremendous coaching. That's just brilliant because – you're trying to throw something in with somebody's routine or, or mechanics, but if it doesn't seem to be benefiting them, um, then he says, all right, you know, forget it, <laughs> toss it out the window. And so I think that kind of, that really represents his style as well of not only is everybody different, but I also, you know, I don't, I don't know everything that's going to work. Let's, let's trial and error. Let's experiment and let's see what works for somebody you know, what works for Messersmith might not have worked for Sutton. What works for, you know, whatever, anything like that. For sure. 
Um, I, you know, his, as a player, he was a pitcher and then obviously was a pitching coach, um, you know, at, at the end of his career, but like in between, um, through some convincing from Tommy Lasorda, he became a scout. I was just wondering, did he have any, any stories or like, did, did he enjoy, uh, like the scouting aspect as much, uh, as pitching stuff or, uh, you know, how was that for him? So he really enjoyed the scouting part. Um, uh, at least two or three aspects of it, he really enjoyed. I think he really enjoyed the, just the notion of trying to discover talent. Like, I, I would enjoy that too. It sounds like a cool challenge yeah. where you're trying to find somebody who others are not recognizing this potential as, you know, where you might. And so, and you, you know, the, the first, the first person he ever signed was Bobby Cox. That's not a first, uh, not a bad first signing, huh? Yeah. And, um, the reading the book, like it, it, and not to discount Red Adams in any way, he he almost seems like a baseball Forrest Gump in that he's he's been around for like so many different things. <laughs> I, I won't spoil other stuff, but like just the people he's he's interacted with and just his entire baseball life is is way more fascinating than like I. I would have expected going in. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and for a poor kid in the central Valley of California, growing up in the heart of the depression, born in 1921, one of six kids. I mean, to, to, to start having a professional baseball career at age 17 and then be in professional baseball until he chose to retire in 1980, <laughs> yeah. I won't give any more details if we're trying to not give, you know, major spoilers, but Hey, that's a, that's a pretty amazing life story. It just inherently, right. Just by itself. That's a, that's a pretty amazing trajectory, but yeah, he, he, he definitely, Oh, scouting. Sorry. I got distracted. So with scouting, um, he really enjoyed the, just the idea, the concept of trying to find talent and trying to look at how somebody's body is, how old they are, how long they've been playing and just kind of their natural, I guess, fluidity and, and, and capabilities and, and all of that. But he also really enjoyed the, the travel. He drove a lot. I mean, he drove, he drove great distances, excuse me, as a scout, he drove all over California. Um, and so, he liked being on the road and just kind of cruising around and going from one ballpark to another, or one little town to a big city to another small town. And, and, um, and he liked that a lot. And then my, my dad, um, so my father who grew up, you know, shagging baseballs on major league fields, that's a, <laughs> that sounds like a really fun experience. Um, my father was able to tag along a decent amount of the time on red scouting trips and able to sit up there with a few scouts, you know, they're sitting up there with hats and coats and, you know, probably a couple cigars every now and then, whatever. And, uh, my dad as a young kid was able to sit up there with his dad and, and just with a group of scouts and, uh, you know, kind of be involved in even using the stopwatch and, and, and just, you know, from the time they finish their swing to first base and, and all that stuff. So, uh, red definitely enjoyed scouting. Um, but I would say if I don't think I ever asked him directly, but I would say if I asked him directly, he probably would have said he enjoyed the actual, um, you know, detail oriented 
pitching advice, kind of that coaching, probably a little more than the scouting, but that just tells you how much he enjoyed the scouting part. Sure. Um, so I, I have one other uh, question for you. Just throughout the book, you know, and and through this interview, you could sort of very clearly see that Red seemed like someone with a pretty great sense of humor. And, and a few yeah. times, a few times in the book, you you sort of allude to or or mention uh, when he'd like raise an eyebrow, whether whether when he was younger or later. <laughs> and like, can you just explain what like what that meant and like what what it sort of embodied about him? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's funny you asked about that too. I have a, a GIF, right? So the GIF, you know, the the animated pictures that never stop moving. Yep. Right. Um, so I have, uh, I, I actually create some of my own just for fun. And I have one uh, of my grandfather doing a repeated eyebrow raise. And, it, <laughs> and it's a GIF of it. I actually sent it to my mom for something like last week. Um, and it just, you know, it gives me, it gives me a smile like every time. And, and it will, you know, for as long as that technology exists and I'm around. And, but he, he would raise his eyebrows, whether it's a prolonged one raise or whether it's just kind of, uh, you know, a, a few up and down, right? Just like up, down, up, down, up, down. He would raise his eyebrows, I think, in such a, a vast array of settings. Like, it could be when he just gave you a one-liner and, he, and he's, you know, bringing in humor very clearly and he's, and he's got a punchline of some sort. And then he, he, he would sniff often. He would, like, he would, he would do a sniff, like, and then do the eyebrow raise and kind of, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just that old school kind of mannerism and then um he also would raise his eyebrows and just kind of when someone else would do something either surprising or impressive or noteworthy he, he he'd do it then and and uh and the best is you know if you tell him something where it's something that's uh pretty cool or unique or something before he said a word he would sometimes you know just raise that eyebrow and kind of like get that that half smile or quarter quarter smirk on one side and and i mean it's just it, it was kind of representative of him and and it also was uh it was versatile it was versatile it wasn't just in any one situation or a couple it was you know he he would raise his eyebrows and kind of do that that sniff <laughs> sniffing eyebrows and, and whatever and he'd he'd often accompany it then go say how do you like that buddy you know he'd say something like that or how do you like them apples and you know anything like that old phrases and and uh and sometimes he'd, he'd get he'd he'd ball up his fist he'd ball up his fist and just kind of like i don't know he'd make some movements and and even <laughs> even just like kind of punch his other hand and be like yeah how do you like them apples huh you know <laughs> Um, he, he was just, he was such a character and he was just such a joy to be around. I mean, even when I was what, 12, 15, however many years old and a couple of buddies would come over just for a couple of days, we'd make the two hour drive and go hang out with my grandparents. And I mean, even at an age where, you know, parents are, are not cool and grandparents may or may not be cool and different situations. I mean, it doesn't matter the age. <laughs> the personality you're talking about people who are super outgoing and wild like Bob Welch, or you're talking about people who are super reserved and quiet at any age. Everybody loved red Adams. Everybody. I mean, Zach Ford, 
Zach Ford, the, the um, you know, journalist who, who became close with Red decades and decades ago, he just sent me a picture um, last week, I think. He just sent me a picture of him in his customized Red Adams majestic Dodgers jersey in the, home, in the white, home white. Um, he sent me a picture of him. It's his eighth year in a row, I believe, where he's gone down to Dodger Stadium, driven from Northern California to Dodger Stadium in a Red Adams jersey to attend a Dodgers game. He's just done that, um, sometimes with his family, sometimes on his own, every year just to honor, honor my grandfather. And he even gave us, like, our own customized Red Adams jerseys stitched in every – I mean, incredible. And so you bring up the number of people he touched. I mean, whether it was one fan – in one restaurant or a journalist or the grounds crew. I mean, he had so many stories about the grounds crew, right? I mean, he, and some of the people in the interview talked about it. He, he treated everybody with the same amount of respect. It didn't matter whether you're the, the owner, um, a player, groundskeeper, you know, he just, he, he really lived with the, you know, third grade cliche that he grew up hearing treat others how you want to be treated and you know and and he really just captured that and and uh when you mix in his humor with his very very oversized warm heart uh it 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 explains it's no wonder why and how he was able to to really impact so many people and and leave that lasting impression of just such a quality person and so yeah i don't know Sorry for rolling a little bit there, but <laughs> oh no, that, that's that's perfect. Uh, it really comes through in the book too. Uh, the book is called Red and Blue: Examining the Wonderful Life of Red Adams. Uh, I'll link to it in the in the show notes. But uh, Eric, I can't thank you enough. This was a great interview. Um, very happy we did it, and and um, I, I you know I look forward to people enjoying this book. It, it was a fun it was a fun read. I really appreciate it, Eric. Thank you so much. And, and I'm going to give you one more quote before I leave. But first of all, uh, thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I mean, anytime I get to talk about my grandfather, as you can tell, I got a little bit of excitement and a little enthusiasm and energy. I mean, he was my guy. And, and so such fond memories. And I'm so thankful to have spent so much time with him, um, you know, during my time on this planet and during his 95 years of life. But uh, also, um, let's see, there was something else I was going to say other than just, you know, saying thanks. Oh, yeah. If, if this book, you know, if this story about my grandfather even reaches a couple Dodgers fans out there who didn't know that this is out there and they, and they can read, um, then that's a victory. Because, you know, again, anyone and everyone who knew who he was or even people who never knew him and weren't even alive at that time or anything – I mean, but people who remember who he was, if this even reaches a couple Dodgers fans, uh, that's a victory. And, and, that's, and that's awesome. So the last quote that I'll leave you with is, he said this, <laughs> I don't know. I probably heard it myself over 400 times. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. He said, he said, boy, I, he said, I, I was, uh, you know, definitely not the best student. He goes, I wasn't just a dropout. He said, I was a run out. They couldn't wait to get rid of me. I wasn't no high school dropout. I was a run out. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's the phrasing he has for, you know, that, um, that part of his life where 
you know, ended up transitioning from school to professional baseball, but he just, uh, yeah, I get, I get so excited talking about him and, um, I just thank you very much for having me and, and for, and for reading about my grandfather and just learning about his life story. I, I really appreciate it.